And so right now we're in the midst of a series called What is the Gospel? What is the Gospel? And that seems so elementary, doesn't it? That just sounds so basic, so foundational. But I wonder this morning, if somebody were to come to you, if one of your children were to come to you, if one of your coworkers were to come to you, and facing the difficulties of life and realizing the gravity of their sin, they were to come to you and ask you, mom, dad, friend, can you share with me the gospel? Can you tell me what you mean by the word gospel? I wonder how many of us would have a, a reasonable explanation. I wonder how many of us could clearly and concisely state the nature of the gospel and the realities of the gospel so that our husbands, our children, our neighbors might be converted into the kingdom of God. You see, it sounds elementary and it sounds foundational and it sounds basic, but if any of the research holds up to be true, what we know is that the average parishioner, the average member of the average congregation can't articulate the basic tenets of the faith. And so this morning we are in our third week. A couple of weeks ago, Aaron talked to you about the holiness, the righteousness, and the justice of God. Last week, John talked with us about the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, the inherent wickedness of man. And so what we're going to try to do this morning is reconcile those two realities. How is it that a God so holy and a God so righteous can be made reconciled with a man so wicked, with a, with a humanity that is so deeply depraved? And so what we're going to see in the last half of Ephesians 2 is, is how can these two realities be reconciled? Because brothers and sisters, that is the essence of the gospel. That man who was separated from a righteous and holy God can now be reconciled to him, united to him, abiding in him, living by his strength, living by his power, living for his glory. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Ephesians chapter 2. John started last week by looking at the first four verses. We're going to look through verse 10 today. We'll read all of it together. So if you turn there, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. 
So for us to really understand what Paul is teaching us, what, what Paul was teaching to the church at Ephesus, and what Paul is saying to us as his disciples today, I think we can summarize the essence of it in the first phrase of verse 1 and the first phrase of verse 4. Look at that with me now. It says at the beginning, and you. And you were dead in the trespasses. And then you go to verse 4, and how does it start? But God. But God. So I think if we were to summarize the essence of the gospel, we could say, and you, but God. And you were dead in your trespasses. And you were following after the devil, following after the natural path of this world. And you were a child of wrath, owed the condemnation of God, owed eternal separation from God, owed the absence of good forever. But God. But God made you alive in Christ. But God raised you up and seated you in the place of dominion over all cosmic powers, over the prince of darkness in this world. But God decided that you are not to be a child of wrath, but rather to be a child of his eternal reward, to experience his immeasurable riches and his immeasurable kindness from this day and forever. And you were separated from God, but God intervened. God initiated his salvation, his redemption in your life. That what Paul is teaching us is that our salvation has nothing to do with us. That we were following after the desires of our flesh. We were following after the appetites of our bodies. We were living out all of the impulses that we have, but God intervened in our life. That if we were to summarize the gospel down to its most simple and elementary, its most simple and elementary definition, what we can say is that the gospel is the reversal of our destiny by the initiative and intervention of God. That it is the reversal of where we should have gone. It is the reversal of what we deserve. It is the reversal of the destination to which we are headed, not because we are good, not because we are inherently entitled to it, but rather because God initiated it and God intervened in our lives for the sake of eternity. You see, I think that's different than the way most of us have been trained to think of ourselves. I think that's different than the way many of us even think about the nature of the gospel. You see, I think most people, these are words that are very familiar to us in, tr in, in church, right? Words like grace, mercy, love, uh, kindness. These, these are words, the, the, the gift of God, that are very familiar to us in the nature of the church, in the, in the life of the church, even in the life of the nominal or the cultural Christian. But I think what's important is that we understand Paul's definition of these words and not the culture's definition of these words. You see, a lot of the time, you can say the same words and mean entirely th different things about it. We can look at the, the Church of Latter-day Saints in Utah, right? And they use all of these words too. They even talk about Jesus as being the Son of God. But by using those words, they mean something entirely different than what we mean when we say them. You see, for us, we are taught to think of ourselves as being entitled to the good things of life being entitled to the good things of life. If you even think about gifts, he talks about this being the gift of God. But you know what I think the issue with us 
we think of ourselves as being entitled to gifts. The only reason you've ever gotten mad at your mama or your daddy or your brother or your sister about the Christmas gift that they gave to you is because you believed yourself to be entitled to a better gift than that. And I would bet that every single one of us at some point or another has opened a gift and smiled and thanks, thanks. Gracie Kate is already telling us what her, pre her birthday presents are going to be for next year. Because she has in her mind that just by the sheer existence of her life here on a, uh, for another year, that she is deserving of a playground or of a Barbie Jeep or of a new doll. That even the idea of gifts for us, even the understanding of presents for us come with an assumption of entitlement, don't they? They come with an assumption of entitlement. And so we read words like grace and mercy and kindness. We even read words like the, that our salvation is the gift of God to us. And we read that and we think, well, of course it is. Of course it is. I am inherently good. I do some bad things from time to time. I mess up just like everybody else messes up. But I'm mostly good with just a little bit of bad sprinkled in. I, I, I am almost entirely good that if you could see my heart, what you would find, even though sometimes I'm rude to you, even though sometimes I'm unkind to you, even though sometimes I'm not who I should be, if you could really see my heart, if you could really see my heart, then you would know that I'm really good, that I'm really mostly good. And it's that mentality that Paul is seeking to obliterate in Ephesians chapter 2. It's that type of thinking that Paul is, 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 is planting the dynamite of the gospel right into the middle of that he might shatter it into a million pieces. It's that you are not inherently good. You were by nature a child of wrath. You are not mostly good. You are, as John said, totally depraved, totally fallen, totally unworthy of a relationship with a righteous and holy God. You are not mostly good. You are entirely bad. So much so that your attitudes and your motives of even the good that's in your life are polluted and corrupted so that you are adding to the offense that you have already infinitely made toward an eternal God. And so what Paul is pointing out for us, what Paul is making clear for us, is that we must rightly understand who we are and rightly understand who God is so that we can properly understand and celebrate the gospel that has come into our lives as a result of the initiative and the intervention of God. What Paul is saying is that you aren't mostly good and in fact, the gospel is not even primarily or foundationally about you at all. That the gospel is primarily and foundationally about God. About God. About, not about your goodness and your entitlement towards salvation, but about God's goodness and God's willingness to save in spite of who you are. It's about God's nature. It's about God's expression of love. You see... The, uh, John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, he says that, that God is love. 
that in other words, love is such an essential attribute of God, this great love that Paul says all of this is because of the great love for which Christ Jesus, or for which God has for you in Christ Jesus. He says that it's so essential to him that you don't say that God is loving. You don't say that, that God is filled with love. Rather, you say God is love. It is, the, it is part of the essence of God's nature. It is part of the essence of God's character as God. And so what Paul is showing us is that the gospel is not a result of the goodness of your heart. The gospel is not a result of the worthiness of your life. Rather, the gospel is the expression of God's character. It is the expression of God's essential nature as being love. That God is gracious toward, toward you because God is love. God is rich in mercy toward you because God is love. God is committed and determined to shower kindness over all of your life for all of eternity, not because you are worthy of kindness, not because you are entitled to kindness, but because God is love. And being love, he is seeking ways in which he might express that love and make that love famous and make that love known so that his name might be glorified above every name. And if you stop and think about that, that is such a more glorious gospel than the gospel of self. If you start, if you stop for just a second and you ponder the reality of who God is, and you ponder the reality of God willingly distributing and pouring out the expressions of his love on you in spite of you and in spite of what you deserve and in spite of what you're entitled to, it is a more glorious gospel than the gospel of self. You see what it says? Is that you are rich in sin. But as rich as you are in sin, God is far richer in mercy. That you are great in your rebellion. But as great as you are in your rebellion, God is far greater in love. That you are determined to go your own way and to do your own thing and to live your own life. But as determined as you are to go your own way and pursue your own destiny, that God himself is even more determined that you would know the unsearchable, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness to you. That the gospel is exactly about you not receiving what you're entitled to. Because what you are entitled to is condemnation. What you are entitled to is wrath. What you are entitled to is hardship. What you are entitled to is eternal suffering. What you are entitled to is the reaping of all of the wickedness that you have sown throughout your life. But instead, in the gospel, because of the great love with which he loves us, because he is rich in mercy, because he is filled with grace towards sinners, because he is determined in kindness toward us, we don't receive what we are entitled to. We receive what Christ Jesus, the Son of God, is entitled to. That we are raised from the dead. That we are seated with him far above all other creation, far above all rulers of this earth, far above all rulers of the, of the nation of darkness, of the kingdom of darkness, that we receive the entitlement not as the natural children of wrath, but as the supernatural children of God brought in by Christ Jesus through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You see, brothers and sisters, he says that it is not of your good works so that no man can boast. But you know what I want you to understand? is that good works are necessary for your salvation. 
Good works are necessary of your salvation. What we need in the church is a healthy understand, a healthy understanding of work salvation. You see, it required works for you to be saved. It just wasn't your works. It just wasn't your works. Jesus didn't just come, live, die, and go to heaven and make you neutral. Jesus came and he did good works. Jesus did good things. He responded positively to God's law. He responded positively to the commands of God. He followed perfectly the will of God all the way unto death. Even though he prayed, God, can this cup pass from me? God, not my will, but your will be done. He followed God and the will of the Father all the way to the cross so that you might be credited with his good works. So that you might then live out the good works that he has prepared beforehand for you. You weren't saved because you were neutral. You were saved because God gave to you the good works of his son. Now, there's a phrase that comes up twice here that I want you to notice. He says that, that we are saved, that you have been saved. He says it once in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. He says it again in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And what I want you to see, <coughs> forgive me, what I want you to see is that that phrase, you have been saved, is given in the perfect participle, all right? Now you're thinking, well, thank you, preacher. That's what I was hoping you would say. Life changed, let's do the invitation, right? But there's a reason in which I point that out, because it's significant. Because you see, what that is saying is that is denoting something that has already been assured, but has not yet been given in completion. So, so in other words, it's you are being saved. You, are, you will be made to be saved. That you are saved, but you are not yet fully in the realization and in the, in the full experience of that salvation. That, that in one sense, you have been saved in that Christ, because of his promises, Christ, because of his good works, Christ, because of the plan and the foreknowledge of God, you have already been saved. Your salvation is assured at this day for every day, for going forward. But you are not yet living out the full wonder. You don't yet fully know the completion of that salvation. That your salvation is assured, but your salvation has not yet, yet been made complete. It is still incomplete as you live now in this body of death. As you live now still battling the, the desires of the flesh, still battling the appetites that you have to live according to the pleasures of this world, still living and battling the impulses of the sinful nature, still, still battling the, the power of sin in your life, even though through the cross and through the resurrection, Jesus has fully defeated the power and the penalty of sin for you. You're still facing these things. See, that's what he's telling the church in Ephesus. That's what he's telling the church in Ephesus. He said, I know that you're still battling in his marriages. Paul's going to talk about that. I, I know that you're still battling in, in raising up young sinners in your household. He's going to talk about that, Ephesians 6. I, I know that you're still battling with anger. I know that you're still battling with, with a, a boss that you go to every day, that busts your chops every single day. I know that you're still battling health. I know that you're still battling hardship. 
I know that you're still battling all of the things of the flesh, but that is because you haven't yet been made perfect. That is because the gospel is already assured to you. The gospel is already promised to you. Your salvation is already certain, but it is yet to be completed. You are yet to know the full glory of what is to come. And this is what the prosperity gospel misses. In fact, this is what suffering Christians are missing all over the kingdom of Christ globally right now is that they, they come into the kingdom of God and it's like their life doesn't get easier. They, they, they begin to follow after Jesus and what they actually find is that it brings suffering and it brings hardship into their lives. What they find out is that even though they have committed themselves to Christ, even though they have taken hold of the gospel and said that they love the gospel, what they find is that their marriage is still a battle and parenting is still a battle and anger is still a battle and bitterness is still a battle. That they have all of these present realities that they thought might go away when Christ came into their lives. But if anything, what they have found is that their suffering, their hardship, their difficulty have only increased as the enemy has come against them. And so what Paul is telling us is if you look in verse 8, that's where he completes his thought that you have been saved through faith. Brothers and sisters, if all of it got easier when we got saved, it wouldn't require very much faith, would it? We'd be running around telling every testimony that we could. Man, my marriage was falling apart. My kids were falling apart. Drugs were a part of my life. I was battling bitterness. I was battling anger. But the very second I got saved, man, all of it just got better. But one of the reasons that people are falling out of the church and one of the reasons that people are having trouble with the gospel is that we have a prosperity theology but not an adversity theology. Because the reality is, is when we come into the kingdom of God, it doesn't get easier. It just means we're not alone. It just means that we're not fighting uncertainty. We may be battling in our marriage. We may be battling in our parenting. We may be battling in our career. We may be battling famine. We may be battling hardship. We may be battling bad health. But we aren't doing it alone, and we aren't doing it with a lack of certainty. Now, we battle all of these things with a certainty toward the future. We battle all of these things knowing that my salvation is a assured though incomplete but one day because of the promises of Christ because of the word of Christ because of the perfect work of Christ because of the reconciliation available in Christ one day all of this is going to fade away and all of this is going to turn into glory all of this is going to transform into glory see brothers and sisters that's what it means to take hold of Christ by faith to be saved by faith through faith it means that I live with a certainty of the future even though I'm still battling today. It means that I, can, I bank my life fully on Christ today because I believe and I am certain of the promises that Christ has made for me for tomorrow and for all of eternity. It means that I respond to the words of Christ. I respond to the commands of Christ. I respond to the call of Christ right now by banking the entirety of my life on him today because of what he has told me is to come tomorrow. That's why it can't just be mental assent. It can't just be mental agreement. It can't just be mentally believing that, that Jesus was raised from the dead or mentally believing that we're going to answer to a creator or even mentally believing that Jesus is the only way to heaven. It has to be, I'm going to bank my life today 
fully on Jesus with my money, with my family, with my marriage, with my career, with my ambitions, with everything that I am. I'm going to bank the entirety of my life on Jesus because I am assured that one day it's all going to be worth it. That one day all of my struggles and all of my hardship and all of my tears and all of my sorrow and all of my struggle is going to be worth it. So I'm going to live by faith today, following the way of Christ, living out the commands of Christ, going on the mission of Christ, because Christ has given me the assurance that one day my salvation will be complete. I will receive a glorified body, and I will live in a glorified new earth and a new Jerusalem at his table by his sovereign, wonderful, gracious work. You see, brothers and sisters, the church throughout church history has been foolishly joyful. We've been foolishly joyful. If you put one of us in prison, you know what we do? We sing hymns there. We sing praises to God there. We have testimonies in the scriptures, testimonies throughout the martyrs of church history that give that bear witness to the fact that the guards have been converted through the singing of the people of God in prison. You take away our livelihood, that's okay. You, you cost us part of our livelihood and we will rejoice that we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. We face unhealth here. We, we, we face uh, health difficulties here. How many times have you went to encourage someone that you know is terminally ill and you left being the one that was encouraged? That is the spirit of Christ in them. That is the spirit of God in them because they are able to lift up our spirits, lift up our hearts, even on their deathbed because they have an assurance of what is to come. They have an assurance of the next life. Brothers and sisters, if I could ask you to do anything this morning, it is to bank your life on Christ. Bank your marriage on Christ. Bank your family on Christ. Bank your ambitions on Christ. Bank your career on Christ. Right now, it doesn't seem sensible. Right now, it seems illogical. But he is the king of glory. He is the one before whom every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. He is the one to which you will answer. And so right now, he calls, calls for you to walk down the path of suffering. He calls for you to follow him all the way to the cross. But brothers and sisters, don't you believe for one second that you're going to follow him to the cross and not follow him in the resurrection and ascension to glory. Because he, in the gospel, will credit you with his good works and he will be you will be seated with him on a throne designed for you to rule with dominion over all peoples and nations brothers and sisters that is the essence of the gospel that you by the initiative and intervention of God have been made right with God to ultimately rule with God and that you now live a life of faith because of who Christ has assured you he is you see he gives us here two different purposes for the gospel. At least two different purposes for the gospel. Look first at verse 7 with me. <clears throat> You'll notice there that he says, so that, all right, now I'm not, I'm not really bright, but if he says, so that, then that kind of is a, a cue to me, that, that, that's, a, that's an indicator to me that he's giving me a reason that he's doing this, right? That he's giving me a purpose. I did all of that so that this might be true, all right? Read this with me. So that in the coming ages, 
So you've got future thought, the day in which your salvation is complete, right? The day in which you know the fullness of his glory, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Y'all, let's just stop here for a second. Do you see what he's saying? That I am saving you as a child of wrath. I'm saving you as one who is dead in your trespasses, dead in your sin, hopeless in any other way. And I'm delivering you as an expression of my love by mercy, by grace, into an eternity filled with kindness. That for all eternity, that one of the primary reasons that God has initiated the gospel is so that you can receive and enjoy and delight in the immeasurable riches poured out over you for all eternity. That, you, that God is going to bring you into his house. He's going to bring you into his glory. And he's going to put before you the, the, the full wealth and riches of your inheritance as one of his children. And he's going to say, go in there and find out how rich you are now. Just go until you find the end of the treasure. And after a billion years, you're going to look and be surrounded by the immense glory of God. So direct and so bright that it, the need for the sun is totally eradicated because his light illumines all of creation. And you're going to get right in the midst of this stunning majesty. And you're going to say, I'm not even started yet. I'm not even started yet. I've ran for a billion years deep into the immeasurable riches of my Father, and here I am experiencing all of this kindness poured out over me, and I'm not even there yet. I'm not even started yet. He, said, he uses this word show, right? He uses this word show that, that, that often throughout ancient Greece, what this word show was meant to, was used for is it would be used for a, an artist or a sculptor uh, some type of, of famous uh, architect or painter or something like that, and you would, you would take, and it was to put on display, to put on display the piece of artwork, the, the poem. We think this is where we get the word poem from. And you would, you would put the poetry on display. You would put the painting on display so that all of the passersby would look upon it and they would be astounded at the genius of the artist. That they would come and it would be in, in perfect light and it would be, be propped up in a public place for everyone to see it so that all the passers-by would think, man, what an incredible artist. So you might imagine Picasso painting and, and, having, and, and it's, it's in a display case, in a showcase, and it's been perfectly lit. The sun is, is bouncing off of it just right so that you can see the precision of every brushstroke, so that you can see the, the richness of every hue of, of every color and it's there so that everybody walks by it and they marvel at what a, what a brilliant artist Picasso is and they say man he's, he's done it again look, look at the genius of this man oh just to, just to know just a fraction of the, of the skill and the wonder and it leaves you your jaw dropped and your, your heart lifted and your spirit full and your mind captivated and this is what he's saying that for you and I you and I who once were wretched. You and I who once were tarnished. You and I who once knew brokenness. You and I who once lived entirely for ourselves. That God has saved us. That God has delivered us so much so that now we are showcases. We are masterpieces of His grace. That we are put on demonstration. That if God can do that, that if God can transform Cody Hell, 
If, if, if God can take him and he can make him righteous and he can make him holy and he can make him pure and he can transform him and he can put that up, that the genius of God, the brilliance of God in the gospel is put on fully dis in display so that the, all of creation and all that God has done might be recognized so that the world would be captivated by his grace, so that the world would be utterly astounded at his goodness, so that the world would understand even more clearly and more vividly the, the power and the might and the willingness and the determination of his grace so that they might look upon you, you who once were a child of wrath, now being a child at the table, you who once were owed condemnation, being a child of kindness and, and gifting and love and put on display as a, as a masterpiece of the grace of God. Brothers and sisters, is that how you look? Is that how you live? Because one day that's going to be who you are. It's already assured that's your identity in Christ. You are a masterpiece of grace. You are set apart by grace. You are set apart that God, that the world might be captivated at the genius of God, that he can save you. And so now as we live on earth, it is our responsibility to showcase the grace of God and showcase the kindness of God more and more evidently, more and more clearly with every interaction, with every friendship, with every relationship, with every promotion. It is all given that more and more as we are sanctified and made holy in the image of Christ that we could be showcases of the power of God, showcases of the goodness of God, showcases of the greatness of God. Are you living right now as a masterpiece of grace that draws in the unchurched and the unbelieving world to want a God like that to save them too? Is that how you're living? Now there's a second purpose that we see here. There's a second purpose that we see here. Look at, look at verse 10 with me. We're going to talk about this a whole lot more next week, but, but Let's go ahead and jump in a little bit right here. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That we are created for good works that God, pre that God prepared in eternity past, that we should walk in them and bring glory to God. The word created there, that is not talking about the original creation. We see two other instances in which it's used in Ephesians, and in both of those two instances, what we see is both of those are referring not to the initial creation, but to the recreation. That in both of those instances, the creation that he's talking about is the, the regeneration of your heart. He's talking about the spiritual rebirth of your life. That like he told Nicodemus that whoever would inherit eternal life must be born again. He's talking to people that have been born again. That when you are born again, when you are born again into the church, when you are baptized into the body and you are now filled and indwelt with the spirit, that now you are able to do good works that you were once incapable of. That you are now able to bring glory to Christ in a way that you were previously disabled from doing that you are now able to bring, bring honor and bring worship as a living sacrifice offered to a holy God in a way that you were once impotent to be a part of, that you have been recreated, that you have been saved, but you have been saved and recreated for a specific 
purpose, for a purpose that God had when he chose before the foundations of the earth that you would be in his church, a, 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 a purpose and a significance and a meaning that the Lord assigned to you when he wove you together in your mother's womb, good works that have been prepared beforehand for you to do. You see, here's what I think we should see, that these two purposes in Ephesians chapter 2, they come together. They come together. Think of them like, like two engines pulling a train. Two engines hitched to one another, both heading in the same direction, both, both pulling in the same direction and for the same purpose and to the same destination. That on one hand, you are saved so that you can experience the kindness of God forever. That you are experienced so that you can know more and more every day from now until the rest of eternity, infinitely so, so that you can know better and know more deeply and know more powerfully and know more personally and know more truly the grace and the kindness of God. But, but we are not to be dams of kindness as it's poured into us so that it dams up and puddles up and stagnates. Instead, we are to be channels of God's kindness. That God pours into us his kindness and his, pours into us his generosity. And because our Father is immeasurably rich, now I can afford to be generous. Now I can afford to give myself away. Now I can afford to live sacrificially. Why? Because it is God's kindness going through me. Now, as one that, has, that knows the, that is the son of the one who reigns over everything, the one who is sovereign over everything, over every person, over every circumstance, over every hardship, over every difficulty. Now I can have peace and I can have contentment. No matter what's going on with my kids, no matter what's going on with my job, no matter what's going on with my health, I can have peace. Why? Because God's kindness is channeling through me. God's kindness is going through me so that I can have peace and then I can be a messenger of peace. I can be an advancer of peace with the relationships and with the influence that I have. That, that if, I, if I know that I am secured in the kingdom of God, I can be content in my circumstances, not because my circumstances are good, not because my circumstances are easy, but I can be at peace and I can spread that peace to others because now God's kindness is pouring into me and it is channeling through me. That I can forgive people because I have been forgiven. God's kindness has come to me and is now channeling through me. I can be patient with you even though it's difficult for me and even though it's unnatural for me because God has been long-suffering for me and God has been steadfast in his patience to me. And so it is God's kindness coming to me and channeling through me. What we need in the church and what our community needs us to be and what our families need us to be is to be channels conduits of God's kindness coming to us so that God's kindness might go through us. When we look at the history of the church and we read of the testimony of those that have come into faith, how often have you read, how often have you heard that it was because of the kindness of a Christian when I couldn't find kindness anymore, anywhere else? Brothers and sisters, are you living as channels of God's kindness, doing the good works that God prepared beforehand for you to do so that God, in all of his glory, the one who intercepted and intervened you in your misery, intervened in the midst of your difficulty, intervened in the midst of your hardship, came and delivered you so that you are no longer a child of wrath, but one of his children. Brothers and sisters, can the world see it? Let's pray together.